0: church our Lord said why are you persecuting me so Christ is still on the cross behold I stand at the door knock. if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and eat with him Hola, buenos dias, que Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you after a few weeks off, and now we're fired up, we're ready to get right back into it. But this week we're going to be talking about the Church's doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. This is what the Catechism says is the source and the summit of what we believe as the faithful. And so I think it's going to be very important for us to clarify what does the church teach about this, but where do we get it from? I'm going to give you a biblical defense of this doctrine, and if I have time, I'll get into some of the early church testimony of this doctrine as well. Now, opening us up in the show today was a brand new song off a brand new album from a Catholic group that I love so much. It's called The Glorious State is the name of the group, and the song is called Glory to Our God off of their brand new album, Fading into the Light. You can get more information on that group off my website at com. That's all one word, com. so check that out today. Well, before we dive deep into this great topic of Jesus Christ truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, there under the guise, under the appearance of bread and wine at Sacred Mass, let us start with a prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All glory and gracious God, we come before you. We seek your holy mercy and we praise your holy name. You alone are worthy of praise. You alone are glorious indeed. And so we stand in awe of you, Lord, especially of the sacrament that you have graciously given to us as food for the journey, as the bread of life, the manna come down from heaven to give us life. So we praise your holy name and we seek your Holy Spirit to come upon us and give us the words to guide us through your grace to the truth that you have made known to us through your only begotten, our Lord, our God, Jesus Christ. True God and true man, we praise your name. Father, I lift up in prayer to you, my father-in-law, who is suffering from cancer. I pray for your grace upon him. I pray for your strength upon him. And if it be your will, may you heal him miraculously for his conversion, for the conversion of the entire family, and for all poor souls who need you most. I pray this for your grace and seek you in your mercy. I pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let's get started. I took up a poll. I've I've been taking this poll now for a few weeks off of my site, catholichack.com, basically asking, do you believe in what the church teaches on the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist? And I gave a couple of options for, for people to choose from. Option number one was, amen, I believe. Option number two was, I don't know, but I do trust the church. Option number three, if you believe, then it is Jesus but if you don't believe, then it's not Jesus. And the last option was, no, I don't believe. Well, we were blessed. We had 143 voters, and out of those, 91%, that's 130, voted amen, I believe. Only four votes said, I don't believe. Well, it's likely that the majority of those who voted are practicing in Faithful Catholics. Because as we've seen in recent times, these polls given by news agencies that suggest that the majority of Catholics, I think the last one said 61%, do not actually believe in this doctrine. And so you might not, if you're listening, you might not uh, believe in this doctrine, or you might, not, uh, you might know somebody who doesn't believe in this doctrine, maybe, maybe a family member or a loved one a neighbor even, who knows. So I thought it's very important for us to to sort of clarify what the church teaches and really give a defense for this. I want to show where in scripture we we can reference to back up our claim that this is what the church teaches, that Jesus Christ truly is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity there under the species of bread and wine. Now, it seems very fanciful to those who are outside of the church. You know, it tastes like bread. It tastes like wine. It looks like bread. It looks like wine. How can he be there? I think you people are just fanatics. Really? Well, I think when we get into the text, we're going to see that we're not fanatics. We're just faithful. And sometimes our faith has both faith and reason. And some things are reasonable. We can touch them. We can taste them. We can feel them. And sometimes our faith requires an act of faith, that when Jesus says, you know, so let it be, we believe him. You know, when he says, truly, truly, I am, ego me, we believe him. When he says, amen, amen, we believe him. And so this is one of those cases where our Lord spoke very clearly, and we believe him. Then we see an entire tradition of the Church believing him all along the way. Even as back as the first century, we have historical writings that corroborate the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. We also have miracles. There's a uh, a great book here in my library, called "Miracles of the Eucharist," going you know back all the way uh, the earliest centuries, detailing some of the greatest eucharistic miracles that we have in recorded history a lot of which were scientifically explored so pick this book up in fact i may just put a link on the on the website catholichack.com under this particular uh, posting so you can get more information on that well we got to get into the the scriptural references here or we're going to run out of time now i want to go about this sort of in a methodical way and um, the first step is i want you to understand that in the old testament we saw what Priests. Priests offering what? Sacrifices. And those sacrifices were on altars. Now, we need to think of that same model only in the New Testament. Because if there are priests, then there must be a sacrifice. So let's dive backwards now. Exodus chapter 24, we see Moses there setting up an altar and 12 pillars and taking 12 men from the 12 tribes who were priests because they offered sacrifices. They offered the lambs, the bulls, and the goats. And he took these 12 men and gave them and and they, they made sacrifice. And then he took the blood from their sacrifices and he sprinkled it not only on the altar, but on the people. It themselves on the people gathered there under the mountain where they were come to meet God. And he sprinkles this blood upon them and says, you know, that this is the blood of the covenant. Very, very specific language. But understand that it's done in the context of priestly sacrifice, specifically 12 priests. And we're going to see this again. Now, let's fast forward. Luke chapter 22, verse 26. What does our Lord say there as he's instituting... The Eucharist there in the the upper room, the Last Supper, the night before he is betrayed and offered up for our sins, he becomes the victim. We're going to get into that here in a minute too. But there in Luke chapter 22, verse 26, our Lord says that this is this blood that's poured out. It's It's poured out. This is the blood of the new covenant. Our Lord uses the same exact language that's used there in Exodus chapter 24. Now in Exodus 24, Moses had twelve priests, twelve on twelve pillars offering sacrifice. Our Lord here in Luke chapter 22, as well as in Matthew's Gospel, in Mark's Gospel, you know, <laughs> and First Corinthians, we see the same thing in the upper room. Our Lord, who is the new Moses, Moses was a type of our Lord. Our Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. He's there in the upper room with what twelve men. And he's instituting this Eucharistic sacrifice. He's making these men priests. And he uses the same language, this blood that he gives thanks, and he says, this is my blood, which is the blood of the new covenant. So he takes the cup of wine, and he blesses it. That, the Greek word used here is eucharisteo. And that's where we get the word Eucharist, or thanksgiving. And so the very word of Eucharist is used in the Gospels to describe the blood of our Lord, which our Lord says is the blood of the new covenant. Very specific language, very much drawing our attention right back to Exodus chapter 24. Also notice that our Moses in Exodus 24 pours, they sprinkles that blood on the people, on the people. Now, what happens Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, when our Lord is standing before Pilate, that's where we get the ecce homo, actually comes from John's gospel, but ecce homo, behold the man there and in and before Pilate, he's, Pilate's trying to offload Jesus and, and there were no takers. No, 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 give us Barabbas. And Pilate is saying there, no. Uh, This I'm innocent of this man's blood. And the people shout out all the more, crucify him, crucify him. Let this man's blood be upon us and upon our children. Again, this is just guiding our minds right back there to Exodus chapter 24. The link is not a coincidence. It is very specific. This is a priestly sacrifice that's going on the new covenant is a fulfillment of the old and so if moses has 12 priests then our lord has 12 priests those 12 priests are the apostles there in the upper room with him who he's giving the sacrifice to and so we see that if there is a priest, there must be a sacrifice. Now, specifically, in Acts chapter 1, verse 26, we see St. Peter, who has to replace the office of, of Judas, who hung himself because of his shame for betraying our Lord, betraying innocent blood, mind you. What does he do? He casts lots. That's Acts chapter one verse twenty-six. Casts lots to pick Matthias to replace Judas as the twelfth bishop or the twelfth uh, apostle. Okay, very important. The casting lots is very very particular. It's also very very priestly. Why? Because in Luke chapter one verse nine we see how uh, we see how. Um, Zechariah, who, when he was a priest serving at the temple, they had to cast lots to determine what his service would be. We see the same thing being talked to uh, talked about in First Chronicle, uh First Chronicles chapter twenty-four, verse five, where it says, quote, "Their functions were assigned impartially by lot, for for they were officers of the holy place and officers of the divine presence." Casting lots is how they determined the priestly function, and that's exactly how, how the Twelve, specifically St. Peter getting up, that's exactly how they saw their role as priestly. That's why they chose lots, to determine who would replace the office, the episcopacy of Judas? Again, very priestly. Also, if you want another tangential link, the fact that our Lord in the upper room in John's Gospel washes his twelve disciples. Again, that's what Moses did to Aaron, washing Aaron and his sons to make them priests, high priests, and 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 also regular serving priests. So again, extremely priestly. For more information on the link of, of priests of uh, the, specifically the 12 apostles being priests, I did an entire show on just that one topic on the Catholic Hack podcast. I'm going to post a link to that on my show with show notes, uh, references, and entire... Uh, we dive much deeper into the topic. So I want you to check that out. Just go to the website, catholichack.com, and you'll be able to get all that information very quickly. But one last thing on this point of these, pri- these men being priests. And the parable of the wine press... In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, starting in verse 33, Jesus tells us a parable about how this rich man sets up a wine press with a hedge around it, and he, he he lends it out to these tenants. And these tenants come and they they start to you know manage this whole press. And when the man sends for you know his part of the harvest, they beat and they they abuse his servants and they kill some. Well, eventually the, the, the man who owns the place says, you know, I'm going to send my son. Surely they won't kill my son. Surely he won't do wrong to my son. Well, these people were looking for the son. And what do they do? They take him and they cast him out of, the, of the, the wine press, outside of the hedge. There they kill him. And they said, let us take his inheritance. And then Jesus says to the people he's telling the parable to, what will this guy do? And the people say, well, he's going to take it away from these evil people and give it to somebody who's good. Yes, that's true. Jesus will take away and give that same thing to somebody who will do it right. Well, here's a couple of questions I want you to think about if you go back and read that parable. Once again, that's Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, the parable of the winepress. Number one, what, who is he speaking to? Who exactly is our Lord speaking to in this parable? Now, you might say, he's speaking to you and me. It's everybody. Well, on a certain sense, you're right. But that's not exactly true because he was speaking to a very specific audience. Those specific people there in front of him. Who were they? Number one. And number two... What is he taking away? And what is he giving to another person, to other people? Well, if you actually back up to the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, uh, chapter 21 there, what you see is our Lord is speaking to the chief priests, the elders, but specifically the chief priests. Uh, That's Matthew chapter 21 there at the very, very beginning. It says, um, actually, no, verse 23, sorry, Matthew 21, verse 23, it says, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. And then he goes on to talk. That's who he's talking to. He's talking to the chief priests. And what will he take away from them? He will take away their priesthood. And he will give it to the twelve men whom he's called out. Whom he is making priests. Whom he washed as priest, Whom he gave the Eucharist. The sacrifice. Where there are priests, there must be a sacrifice. An interesting thing a point here on every single archaeological find of the earliest churches, Christian churches, dating back as far as the first, second, third century, there's always an altar. <laughs> if there's an altar, there must be a sacrifice. If there's a sacrifice, there must be a priest. Notice the link. So again, if there's a priest, there must be a sacrifice. These 12 men our priests. So, let's move on. Now, if there's a sacrifice, there must be a victim. In Exodus chapter 12, what do we see? We see Moses being commanded by God to tell the people to institute the Passover. There they are in Egypt, and he wants to get them out, and he's telling them, look, the Lord, I mean, we're, we're going to be passed over here, and Every firstborn is gonna die, so you better do this, and you better do it right. And he gives them, amongst other things, he tells them to take an unblemished lamb. There, he tells them to take the blood after they sacrifice it, and mark it on the doorpost with a with a hyssop branch. So he's taking the blood and he's marking it on the doorpost with a hyssop, and this 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 lamb has to be unblemished; can't have any faults. And it can't have any broken bones either, and it must be eaten. God doesn't say, well, you know, Moses, if if somebody complains and doesn't like lamb, well, tell them to do this, tell them to make cookies in the shape of lambs, and eat those instead. No. No, take no. How about this? Tell them if they don't like lamb, tell them to make some hot dogs, and and then they can eat those. No. He says, you must eat the lamb. You have no choice. This is the command from God. So again, blood on the doorpost with hyssop, marked there with hyssop. The lamb itself is flawless. It is without fault, and it has no broken bones. That's Exodus chapter 12. Now, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1340, the church says this, By celebrating the Last Supper with his apostles in the course of the Passover meal, Jesus gave the Jewish Passover its definitive meaning. Jesus' is passing over to his Father by his death and resurrection, the new Passover is anticipated in the supper and celebrated in the Eucharist, which fulfills the Jewish Passover and anticipates the final Passover of the Church in the glory of the kingdom. Now, that's just one paragraph. There's so many more in that whole section that are just so clear and phenomenal that I highly recommend you you spend some time there in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. But basically, in a nutshell, the Church is telling us that the Eucharist, the sacrifice of the Eucharist, fulfills the Passover meal, the requirement of God to celebrate, to remember their exodus in the Passover Seder, which is celebrated every year. So, the Jews still today celebrate the Passover. Why because they're still remembering they're still bringing to their memory that experience of exodus of slavery to freedom, and so in that they still take their their lambs they still sacrifice them, and they still have to uh you know make sure that they they fulfill the commandment of God. Well, the church says that our Lord fulfilled this he perfected this in his own sacrifice. His last supper meal is our new Passover sacrifice. That's the sacrifice we celebrate in the Mass every single day. Now, a couple of key comparisons to that sacrifice there in Exodus chapter 12 to the sacrifice our Lord institutes in the the upper room. Number one, again, remember that they had to take the blood of the lamb and mark it on the doorpost with the branch of hyssop, hyssop. That hyssop comes back to us in the New Testament, specifically with our Lord there on the cross as he's about to die, pass away for our sins. He became the victim for us, right? Well, he says there right before he, or actually right after he gave John his own mother and he gave John to his mother, he says, I thirst. You can find this in John 19, 28 and 29. He says, I thirst. Now, what they did was they gave him something to drink. What they gave him was uh, like like a sour wine. And they lifted it up on a branch of hyssop to his mouth. And he took and he drank, John says. Now, I did a whole show called The Fourth Cup which is basically a regurgitation of something Scott Hahn did. So uh, he's the master, I'm the hack. But you can still find that on my website, CatholicHack.com. And we get into the Fourth Cups and why this is so significant. The fact that our Lord says, I thirst. The fact that he actually takes and drinks it. Extremely significant, but more importantly, just to get to the point here, it links this to the upper room. Because what we see is our Lord instituting the sacrifice in the upper room and completing it there on the cross. They are one and the same. It is one event. It is one long narration. And it's very, very important. So check out the website for more information on that to give you more detail. But we see that hyssop the sacrifice, the Passover sacrifice, the link there is not a coincidence. It is very specific, and it was very intentional. The link, the hyssop branch is being brought into us again. Now, again, we see that in Exodus twelve that the lamb had to be without fault, had to be unblemished, nothing wrong with it. Well, in Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-one, Saint Paul tells us that God made him who knew no sin. To be sin for our sake. He took upon our sin upon Himself. He drew all men to Himself. Jesus was unblemished. He was without fault. He knew no sin. He lived a perfect life without fault, without sin. He took on all sin so that he could become that victim for us. That's the same thing that happens in the Old Testament sacrifices. When you were to sacrifice something for sin, you lay your hands on it and you whisper your sins into its ear and it takes on your sin. It becomes the victim on your behalf that you then slaughter. Our Lord... Hands were definitely laid on him. I mean, countless hands in the Passion, but hands were laid on this man and sins were given to him. He takes on those sins for us and he becomes our victim. And he is without fault, he is unblemished. Also, he can't be broken either. The Lamb in Exodus 12 could not have any broken bones. Well, There is no difference with our Lord. He also cannot have any unbroken bones. He, in John chapter uh, 19, verse 33, after he gave up his spirit to God, they came around to break the legs because it was the evening before uh, Sabbath, and they didn't want them lingering on the crosses for much longer, so they snapped their legs and then they suffocate faster and die faster. But when they came to our Lord, they noticed he was already dead. So what they do? Instead of breaking his bones, they pierced him in the side with a spear, which pierced his heart, which poured forth water and blood. Okay, well, they didn't break his bones. Why? Because he was the lamb, the Passover lamb, the fulfillment of the old, brought into the new. He is the perfection of it, and he too, like the Old Testament lamb, could not have any broken bones, and he didn't. So again, we see a very real fulfillment, a very literal almost fulfillment of the Old Testament type here in the New Testament with our Lord. Given these these 12 priests in the upper room, this sacrifice, which is now his body and which is now his blood, very literally in all the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then again in First Corinthians, every time it's very literal. This is my body. This is my blood. Not figurative in any way whatsoever. If your translation is... It makes it sound somewhat figurative, let me suggest you look at other translations, look at several at one time, and get a sense. But also, you can look up the Greek words. I can show you. Email me, catholichack at gmail.com, and I can show you the Greek words. They're very literal, not figurative. This is my body. This is my blood. This is not figurative language in all of the accounts. So we see our Lord fulfilling this Passover uh, sacrifice, this requirement in the Old Testament to take this unblemished lamb without broken bones, sacrifice it, and eat it. Just like in the Old Testament, with all the other fulfillments, we must in the New eat our Lord. Now, where do we get that from, this eat part? How about John chapter 6 now? This is the traditional uh, place where we go to defend the Eucharist, because here in John chapter 6, our Lord is extremely literal about what he means about his presence in the Eucharist. Now, I want to back up before we get getting to the obvious answers. In John chapter 6, we see the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, and he, he multiplies this, and he he makes his 12 apostles distribute the food to the masses. He doesn't distribute the food. No, he makes the miracle, and it's them who distribute the food, bringing back extra each time. And they wanted to make him king, and so he retreats from them. He's not an earthly king. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. They didn't see it the right way. So what happens? He escapes from them, and then they go across the Sea of Tiberias. Now what happens there is in the fourth watch of the night, because he sends his apostles ahead of him, he comes out walking on the water. Now all this was in the wilderness, by the way. And then after that, we get into the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6. Spend some time, reread this this particular chapter. It's very deep. It's very profound. But I mention this beginning part because it's very uh, peculiar. Just like in the Old Testament, when Moses in the wilderness, after he crossed the seas, he walked through the Red Sea there in the wilderness, bread of life comes down from heaven. It's actually the manna. Bread comes down from heaven, and he uses it to feed the. It's a miraculous multiplication in the in the in the wilderness, used to feed the people. Same as our Lord, who in the wilderness, he multiplies bread and fishes and feeds the people in the wilderness. But unlike Moses, he doesn't have to walk through water. No, he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He walks on top of water, and so we see a perfection of the Old Testament type of Moses here in the New Testament. But unlike Moses, who had to ask God to bring down the bread, our Lord says he gives himself in the bread. That unlike the fathers who ate the manna in the wilderness, they died, but if you eat my body and drink my blood, you shall live forever. John chapter 6. It, there's just so many references. It goes on and on and on. But let's, for example... Uh, verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So, so, in other words, they took this very literal, not figurative. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They knew exactly what he meant to say. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up. On the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. I knew it! I knew I'd run out of time! I wanted to go on to talk about the the, the verbiage of remembrance and offering there in Luke's gospel. Anamnesis and poio, Greek words that are sacrificial, recalling the the memory to become present and real. But our Lord says in John 6, eat my body and drink my blood. This is what you do if you want to have life. Well, check me out at CatholicHack.com for more information. God bless you. From the Catholic Underground.